Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Hey, I got one for you. Why did the vegan meat cross the road? I don't know. To prove it wasn't chicken. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download: Culture, Food, and Humor to fuel your party conversations. You just got a joke from Minneapolis's own Kale Walsh that'll break the ice. He is a vegan butcher. Oh yes, that's right. And later in the show, he'll tell us how that's even possible. Mm. Other guests include Catherine Hahn, currently Emmy-nominated for her work in Jill Soloway's *Transparent*, and she talks about starring in Soloway's other series, *I Love Dick*. Plus, Titus Burgess of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt answers your etiquette questions. Indie Rock's clown prince Mac DeMarco DJs a lasagna-laden dinner party. And best-selling author Anne Lamott begs for mercy. And if that all sounds familiar, it's because this is a rebroadcast of an episode we first aired in May. So cast your mind back to a time when the school year was ending. Oh. And when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Tobin Lowe. He is the co-host of WNYC Studios' new podcast, Nancy. It's about LGBTQ stuff. You should check it out. Tobin, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about a story that's about a thing I'm very bad at, which is dressing like a leader. Okay. Although <laughs> you're right. dressed leader-like. I mean, yeah. You can't see I'm wearing a glorified Hawaiian shirt. Okay, you're wearing a Hawaiian <laughs> shirt. You weren't, you weren't. I was being kind. In public radio, that's like a suit. It's yeah. true. But the story I want to talk about, it has to do with a study that uh, these researchers did. And basically, they gave people photos of models, and they asked them to rate them based on their looks, who they thought would be an excellent, average, and mediocre leader. Okay. Basically, they were trying to figure out if there's like a unifying principle over what a leader looks like. Sure. The results were all over the place. Uh (laughs) (laughs) So they dove back into the data, and they were like, what's going on here? And it turns out people just think people who look like them are good leaders. (laughs) <laughs> Whoa. It's as simple as that. That was a unifying theme. Everyone is kind of they pick a themselves. narcissist when it comes to leadership. Exactly. This explains all of Silicon Valley, right? It's like, well, Zuckerberg wears a hoodie. So do we. Of course he's a leader. Exactly. This guy looks smart. <laughs> so it seems like authenticity and being yourself might be the best way to be a leader, right? I think that this is going to make me cynical forevermore <laughs> and just look at people above me and just try and a hundred percent mimic them. So you can impress the leader of your company by looking like them because they'll <laughs> think that you are a leader. So you're going to pull the reverse move. Exactly. Very clever, <laughs> Tobin. It's all a ruse. <laughs> We've got it. Tobin's going to be president, I guess, by tomorrow. That's right. That's why Tobin's wearing a big red tie right now, yeah. taped at the back it's that true. goes below his belt line. It's true. <laughs> Thank you so much for the small talk, sir. Thanks for having me. And now lead us to some cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a humidifier, but instead of water, it mists your room with booze. Mm. Hadn't thought of that. First, the history. This week, back in 1982, headband and leg warmer manufacturers the world over rejoiced. Michelle Philippi is here to tell you why. Some of the biggest trends of the 80s were thanks to Jane Fonda. At that point, she'd already been a sex symbol fashion model, she'd won two Academy Awards, and she'd angered a big chunk of America by visiting the enemy during Vietnam. There was just one realm left for her to conquer, fitness. Ballet had been Jane's workout of choice, but after breaking her foot, she turned to a new exercise regimen called aerobics. 
Soon, she had her own aerobic studio and a best-selling workout book. So best-selling, it gave a guy named Stuart Carl an idea. Carl produced VHS videotapes about home improvement. You played him on these expensive, newfangled contraptions called video cassette recorders. Only about 5% of households even owned one. But Carl thought a video of Jane leading an aerobics class might sell a few copies. He was totally wrong. Are you ready to do the workout? Jane Fonda's workout sold more like 17 million copies. To watch it, people had to buy VCRs, arguably launching the home video boom. Aerobics became a nationwide craze, launching the fitness industry boom. And Jane's workout uniform launched a neon-colored spandex and leg warmers boom. Jane went on to appear in 29 more exercise videos, including one at age 75. She was the first non-engineer ever inducted into the Video Hall of Fame. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm talking with Tom Sigsby at Mohawk Bend here in Los Angeles, the birthplace of Jane Fonda's workout. Not, not this bar, but this city. No, it was actually here. That's not true. This would be no place to exercise. No, certainly not. So you've heard the history. What drink are you going to serve along with it? We're doing a drink since uh, this is kind of the advent of uh, you know, video cassettes becoming more popular. We can do a drink called a VHS. Nice. Uh, a vodka hibiscus strawberry drink. But that's my acronym, the VHS. <laughs> so basically we're trying to get a, a somewhat healthy cocktail that you certainly shouldn't drink while you're working out, but it might not be that cool down. Uh, vodka being a clean spirit, and then get some strawberry, some agave in there to keep your heart levels pretty even instead of sugar. Some hibiscus for heart health, a little lime juice, you know. I've never heard a cocktail described as healthful. Oh, absolutely. They're all healthful. All right. Um, so let's watch this being made. You're starting. You've got lovely strawberries. A bit of strawberry. We're going to cut off the tops, throw those into a little glass here. Add to that some good-sized basil leaves. I'm assuming this is all going to get muddled up nice. Mm-hmm, of course. At this point, you could put this in a blender and pretend that you're uh, just really into juices. Absolutely. Uh, did a little bit of agave, which is uh, probably the best sweetener you can use. Uh, low glycemic index, you know, nice and good. This is the most L.A. drink ever so far. <laughs> At least the way you're talking about it is very L.A. And then from there, we're going to add probably the least healthy but still delicious, a nice organic lemon vodka from a distillery in downtown L.A. And then also from the same distillery, Fruit Lab's organic hibiscus liqueur. Some fresh lime juice, about three-quarter ounce of fresh lime juice. To offset the sweet a little. Shakety shake. Strain that into a nice fresh ice glass. It's very lovely looking. It's kind of reddish pink. Very tropical almost looking. Good hues indeed. Care to try? Yes. No, I'm just going to walk away. (laughs) All right, I'm going to sip this. Oh, man, I love it. Yeah, it's both sweet and tart. It's got like some nice aromatics in there. What is the, what's the aromatics coming from? Mostly the basil. The one thing is, though, like it should, I think you have to serve this with more ice so that the, the glass is sweating. Sure. Tom Sigsby, bar manager at Mohawk Bend in the Echo Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. You can work those triceps by shaking up your own version. Mm. The recipe's on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. 
And now, for some music you should be listening to. And here with suggestions is musician Mac DeMarco. All right. Along with his catchy, hazy guitar rock, DeMarco's become famous for his sense of humor and for antics like tweeting his home address and inviting fans to visit him and his girlfriend. Here is Mac with a dinner party playlist that'll go great with a red checkered tablecloth. Hello, everyone on the airwaves. My name is Mac DeMarco. Here's my Italian-Canadian-inspired dinner party soundtrack. The first song we've got for you today is a song which is not from an Italian person, but deals with some Italian themes. It's Scenes from an Italian Restaurant by Billy Joel. A bottle of red, a bottle of white. It all depends upon your appetite. I lived in New York for a certain amount of years, and I used to drive my car around a lot. I would always listen to CBS and they pretty much play Billy Joel, Elton John, Billy Joel, Elton John. So it wasn't even so much that I discovered that I was in love with him, it was more like it was forced upon me. The song goes all over the place. It's really Billy just being as much of a jerk with his songwriting as he can. Billions of lyrics. It changes styles here and there, tempos. It's just Billy going like, yeah, look uh, look what I can do. As people are coming in from the cold, you're taking their jackets, they can smell the meatballs cooking, the pasta water is boiling over. I felt that it would be perhaps the perfect ambiance for the the panic before the feast. You know what happens. What is it called? Uh, Hangry? People become hangry. They start talking with their hands even more and more in my family. And the Brooklyn accent comes out when people are hangry. This next song is called That's Amore, which is a song by D. Martin. Dean's voice comes in like a hurricane, but smooth. It's a, the smoothest hurricane you've ever been ravaged by. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. And for anybody that doesn't, you know, know the translation of amore, that's love. And for me and my family, pizza pie, lasagna, spaghetti, that's love, true love. Bells will ring, tingle-ling-a-ling, tingle-ling-a-ling, and you'll sing Vita Bella. I think I was first introduced to it by the movie Moonstruck, which is a great Italian flick. Cher, uh, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I remember watching it as a family, but the funny thing about my family is that my mom and her sisters were born in New York, and they are half Italian. My grandma, she's like a prairie girl, but liked to pretend that she was Italian. I believe that she was this Italian mama, but uh, God bless her for it. Uh, it was good lasagna. My next track is a theme from the Godfather movies called The Godfather Waltz by Nino Rota. I really do like film score. I think in the last couple of years I've been listening to more lyricless music. 
especially these classic sounding beautiful lush songs i would do it if i could do it i'm a bit of like a uh, plebeian i'm not trained very well i can't read it you know i have probably adhd can't stay focused on working on a song idea for very long so this is me dreaming this is me looking up to things that are thought out and and beautiful Maybe someday I'll be able to score a movie like The Godfather, but I'm just a kid now, so I'm having my kid time. This point in the meal, this is after the olive plate is complete. Now the cheesecake's coming up. But you're looking at the cheesecake and you're going, I'm so full, I don't know if I can eat that cheesecake. I want to because it's respect to Grandma, who's going to say that she made it, but everybody knows that she bought it at Safeway. Everybody does. But this is the pain of being Italian, is that the food is delicious, but you feel like absolute garbage right after you eat it. I think this song kind of encapsulates that in some way or another for me. This is a song of mine now, which in turn makes it also 25% Italian, because I am. And it's a song off my new album called This Old Dog, and the song is called Dreams From Yesterday. This would probably be once someone's had like a meatball-induced heart attack or something. It's not a fatal heart attack, but it's a scare. Everybody's getting their coats back on, but it's kind of quiet now. You go home now. See you again next year. What a disaster. Ciao. Once your dreams Come knocking at your door It's time to realize you aren't dreaming anymore. Mac DeMarco, doing us Italian North Americans proud. His latest album is called This Old Dog. He is on tour now. All right, coming up, actor Catherine Hahn tells us how she and Jill Soloway share a brain, and actor mm-hmm. Titus Burgess from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt tells us how he got his start. There was a musicalized version of Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> And I was Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> Colorblind casting back then. That and more when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, your audio arts and leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt star Titus Burgess tells you when it's okay to be creepy at the gym. Finally. Yeah. And in a few minutes, Brendan visits a vegan butcher shop, which exists for real. Mm -hmm. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's actor Catherine Hahn. She had standout character roles on TV shows like Parks and Recreation and movies like Anchorman. Oh, yeah. But she's won major acclaim for bringing some of filmmaker Jill Soloway's best characters to life. That's right. She starred in Soloway's debut feature, Afternoon Delight, and played Rabbi Raquel on her Emmy-winning series, Transparent. This year, Catherine's up for an Emmy for that. And now, Soloway has given her the lead in her new series, I Love Dick. Based on the fictionalized memoir by the feminist author Chris Krauss, Catherine plays Chris, a filmmaker who travels with her academic husband to the artist enclave of Marfa, Texas, where she becomes sexually obsessed with a macho cowboy artist named, yes, Dick. Played by Kevin Bacon, mind you. That's right. When we mm-hmm. met, I asked Catherine what about the book grabbed her interest. I'd never heard of it. Of, of course, I was immediately drawn to the title, <laughs> picked it up and devoured it. And, and I was so blown away by... The voice, Chris Krause's voice is so 
unapologetic and fearless and messy and maddening and complicated <laughs> and self-sabotaging and petty and passionate and all, it was all of it as an actor that you just want to chew on so i would say it would the thing that attracted me the most was this woman this yeah, woman's the, the voice character the character which is not an easy character to play because for all the reasons you've mentioned yeah but she's also she's going through basically every crisis imaginable she's got a midlife crisis going she's got an artist crisis going right. she's got a her marriage is in crisis so her identity is kind of fluid what was your foothold on this character who's changing basically from the moment we meet her? Yeah, yeah. When we first meet her, I mean, it's such an embarrassing set of circumstances that we find her in at the beginning. Like, yeah, like you said, she's financially dependent on her husband. Like, I think as an artist, she's always, she had really great taste, but that she never could quite make. Hmm. You know what I mean? So the stuff always felt really pretentious and not good. That she's making, yeah. Crap. <laughs> I can say that. And she knows it, but she's jealous and petty of other women filmmakers. Like, she's just a, a mess. And her marriage is codependent and tightly fused but like for sure the sexual energy has gone and so what part of that were you able to grab hold on (laughs) and go there i understand i don't understand anything (laughs) no it was a um (laughs) uh there was something about her like forward movement that i grabbed onto because there was no shame or guilt like that felt very strange to me and to not have shame or guilt? Yeah, I guess like it's not like a familiar place to not be apologizing for behavior. Hmm. I mean, I'm like a recovering Catholic from Cleveland. And so it was great to walk into somebody that has is just flinging herself forward over and over and over again. Something like really interesting, powerful about that. What was, what was your favorite thing to do that you maybe wouldn't do in real life? Oh, my God. There's so many things like. She's like doesn't care how she's perceived. Like when she go when she bum rushes the class that he's teaching. Yeah, she's trying to get Dick to praise a film she's made. Yeah, it's like he's... foreplay. <laughs> it's an intellectual yeah, foreplay. Yeah, yeah, artistic foreplay. You would think that someone that was like obsessed with wanting this man to turn and look at her and not only respect her as an artist, but see her as like, you know, attractive and a sexual human being. You would think in that circumstance it's that she would just make herself like small or attractive or just want to, but she doesn't. And that was really, really fun to play. You want my opinion? Do you have one? Because you watched, that was literally. It's not my thing. What do you, what do you mean it's not your it's thing? not my thing. No, I got, I got that. I don't know what you mean when you say not, not my thing. But that's your answer for me is you're just going to shrug? I'm sure there's an audience for this kind of stuff. I'm just not it. This kind of stuff? What do you, can you please, like, what do you mean by this, this, this kind of stuff? This is your, this is yours. This is, this is yours. Yeah, that is, looks like a brick to me. I love a straight line. A straight line is perfection. Okay, well then, I get it. There's no arguing with perfection. I mean, if you've achieved perfection, Dick, what else is there to work on? Is that why you, you, that why you haven't done anything in seven years? Because you've, you've already achieved perfection? Sorry, I don't think a straight line equals art. They don't call it the Philadelphia Museum of Lines. This show does not pull punches yeah. when it comes to its portrayal of the academic world or artists in their kind of ridiculous pretentiousness. Yeah. There's a point where Dick actually says he hasn't read a book in 10 years yeah. because he's, quote, post-idea, <laughs> whatever that means. Yeah. As a, someone who spent their whole life in the arts, how how true does that ring? In the farts. 
Um, I, it does. Yeah, you know, that's also like a, a Soloway special for, is that she will poke fun at, at anything, any kind of preciousness or pretense, which I love and appreciate because it can get really precious. Art academia. You know, you know what I'm, I mean? It's just I'm, like, I'm hoping for an example from your personal I, life. I mean, there's so many. Like, even like it was embarrassing to even like call yourself an artist. For, I was really hesitant to even... That's just an embarrassing word for some reason. Even though, like, I guess, like, I make stuff, it's just still always feels like, oh god, oh brother. But it. Um, I know Spalding Gray actually once mentioned in a monologue that in Britain they actually call actors on the set the artists. Uh, Would the artists like to break for lunch? Things like that, and it, and it felt weird to him. Sometimes, though, like on here, uh, you know, there'll be sets and they're like bringing the talent in. <laughs> And you're like, well, I mean, here's hoping. <laughs> yeah, I'm talented. Sure. <laughs> I hope you, so. You say so. <laughs> um, you've worked more with Jill Soloway than probably any other actor. Mm-hmm. Has she told you what it is about you that she's tried to? I'm always interested in these kind of creative teams and hmm. what brings them together. No, I I'm still can't believe she's just not exhausted by me at this point. But like, we just have like a, a flexibility together. It's like an ease. I know what she is thinking, and she knows what I am. Do you remember the moment when that first presented itself to you? Where you well, no, like it never was like you're mine and I'm yours forever. <laughs> you know, I I do remember during Afternoon Delight that there was a scene where the amazing Juno Temple and I she plays like a a stripper that I kind of take home to mother, and we have a scene where we're like walking and we share a cigarette, and um. I just remember something happening in that scene that I could see something click for Jill and for all of us in that crew that have ended up sticking around, like most of them are still in Transparent and still worked on Dick, into like a new way of thinking and and working. And I, I remember that happening. You know what? I will have a cigarette. Okay. Why not? Went out. It just felt immediately like, not to like, I don't want to sound precious about it, but it just feels like what it felt like when I when I was in theater school. It just oh. had that same purity to it, a sense of like an ensemble, a sense of like performance, and just feeling was kind of prioritized over machines. <sighs> I remember why people do this. There was something, there was like an awakening in that scene for... For Jill, certainly, and for, for all of us. Let me ask you our two questions we ask everyone on the show. Okay. First one is, if we were to meet you at a party, mm-hmm. what question should we not ask you? Oh, my God. What question should you not ask me? I mean, just don't ask me, you know, I was going to say something dirty. <laughs> don't ask me. I don't like when people ask me to quote things, that's always annoying as hell. Meaning? When people like, are when... like, ah, do, the, do your thing from, you know... And I just feel like a, you know, monkey yeah. in a circus. I'm sure you that get does a... not. It's not like that happens like uh, ever. No, but I mean, it's happened a few times and it's always like I'm always like embarrassed. I wouldn't be surprised if people were constantly asking you to do stuff from Anchorman. That That is a very yes, quotable yes, yes, film. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So don't do that is what you're saying. No, well, just because you'll be disappointed. Here's our second question. All righty. Tell us something we don't know. Oh. And that could be about either yourself or about anything in the world. Oh, uh, Okay. I was at a na- the Natural History Museum in New York City with my son, and Love we it. were in the reptile room, and there was a frog, a toad in it, which I have to find the name of, but this toad lays eggs. The eggs 
swim around into slots in the toad's back, like 30 slots. They burrow in. Into its mother toad. In the back of this toad, there are like small toads swimming around in these pockets with like a fold of skin over it. Yeah. And then they crawl out. And I was like, this is a nightmare. But it also looks like it would feel kind of satisfying. <laughs> it would be like having your back itch Yeah, all constantly. the time. Like, I'm kind of repelled by it and also like, eh, maybe it would feel good. Katherine Hahn. She stars in the series I Love Dick, and you will see her at the Emmy Awards next month. Oh, and by the way, she was talking about the Suriname toad. Yeah, just type that into Google image search if you don't want to sleep at night. That's correct. Uh, By the way, Catherine also told us her darkest and funniest childhood story involving a game of King of the Hill gone terribly wrong. Yes, she did. We'll be posting that in an upcoming bonus episode, which you'll only hear if you subscribe to our podcast via Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen digitally. And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Okay, Rico, two words, vegan butchers. Yeah, one word, how? I had the same question. Good. So I decided to investigate. Excellent. Aubrey and Kel Walsh are a sister and brother duo who founded the Herbivorous Butcher in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where they sell fake meat from a store set up like a real butcher shop. Uh Uh-huh. That's right. So the quote-unquote meat case is filled with ribs, porterhouse steaks, ribeye, cold cuts, pastrami, none of which contain meat. Okay. When I sat down with Aubrey and Kale, I asked them why they identify with butchers. It's quite simply because we butcher plants and then we make them taste like meat to fool people into not eating meat. How many people have come in thinking it is an actual butcher shop and what's gone down? There was a, a wonderful police officer that came in one day and... Um, he just wanted some steaks, and he, he asked for ribeye steaks, and at the time we didn't have ribeye steaks, so I pointed him in the direction of porterhouse steaks, and he said, that looks great, and he got a pound of it and walked out, and I didn't tell him otherwise. We're, we're both uh, under house arrest now, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, he, he said it was a crime. So you're both vegan, obviously, so why make meat? Why even play this game in doing something that looks like meat and has flavors like meat? I went vegan when I was 14 years old, and I didn't go vegan because I didn't like meat, and I didn't like eggs, and I didn't like cheese. It was because I just felt like I didn't need to consume something that came from something else or that was alive at one point to make myself happy. And uh, in order to make that work, we had to come up with some of our own kinds of meats. Uh, that we could eat because we still missed it and we missed the texture and we missed it on our plate. I went vegan for a different reason. I was just uh, very overweight in high school. So I went vegan to lose weight before college. So, you know. Pretty radical weight loss regime. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, 60 pounds in three months. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, because, you know, like eHarmony wouldn't accept my application. They were like, no. And then there was Tinder. So and, then, and then there was, <laughs> there was Tinder. Tinder is the meat version of Tinder, by the way. But, oh. yeah. I'm here. I'm here all week, folks. Um, all right. So let's talk about what makes your meat different. Aren't most meats, as I understand it, fake meats are uh, soy based. Tell me what the kind of the basic ingredients of the kind of meats you make here. Yeah. So uh, a lot of our meats are a wheat base, uh, sort of like a strategic seitan, if you ever had that. Uh, so it's a made out of a high-protein wheat flour called Vital Wheat Gluten. And uh, from there, we add a myriad of different spices and vinegars and beans to create anything from Italian sausage to, 
you know, porterhouse steak to uh, chicken things. So yeah. it's a lot of fun for us because we can make literally whatever we want to. We can make a we can make a blueberry habanero pastrami if we want to. You know, it's just yeah, whatever whatever the people need, we got for them. But you can't make a gluten free meat. Oh yeah, oh yeah. How do you make a gluten free meat with gluten based wheat? Yeah, that just rhyme. Ooh. Um, yeah, I mean we're we're satanists at heart. Uh, there's no help in that, but uh, we we've got some uh, jackfruit-based products uh, like our shredded chicken and our pulled pork, and there's a lot of jackfruit out there. But we do a different spin on it. We we make it nice. We 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 grill it. We get them nice meaty flavors in there. But that's not all. I'm working on a one for one Vita Week gluten substitute. So everything from our Korean ribs to our chorizo may eventually be gluten-free. What other things do you do to make it more meat-like? Does it perform like meat when you cook it? Yeah, all of our products can be, or should be cooked like their animal counterpart. Um, We use stuff like a a simulated animal fat or in a lot of our meats, our steak, it's in our uh, lunch meats and our bacon, uh, and that softens and and melts like fat does. Interesting, and then what does that do? Does that give off a certain sense or certain action when you're cooking it that simulates meat? Yeah, it's really fatty and it looks just like fat so if you got a ribeye steak on the grill you know those fatty juices are going to drip down to the coals or the heating element and the smoke's going to come back up and that's really what gives a grilled meat or any kind of protein its flavor is the fat of any kind dripping down and coming back up so yeah so we've established that you both have been vegan for a while but then you're making things that taste like meat certainly you have to like taste the ribeye when you're making the fake ribeye, right? Or someone has to. Uh, we've got some trusted people like our father that are that still eat meat, and they'll be very honest with us if our stuff sucks or not. Sometimes it does. You know, we still try new recipes all the time. I just made one today that sucked. It was, uh, I was trying to make a hot dog really, really red, and instead it turned out to be a sad brown. It is a very sad brown, yeah. yeah. And, and you looked even more sad. Oh, yeah. I, I've eaten sad brown meat hot dogs, so don't feel so bad. Yeah. That, that's actually a real thing. So you share a father. Um, how, what's their relationship to meat? So we were both born on Guam, um, but on Guam, uh, meat is such a huge part of every single meal. You know, our dinner table had grilled hot dogs and then chicken and steak and ribs and it was every single meal so I don't think I could live unless I had those things that I could eat with my family and you know the one thing that I miss so much is spam because uh, I ate that every Friday while I watched Full House when I was a kid. They're like comfort foods are part of your family tradition, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, food is part of everyone's family tradition. And so, you know, that's another reason why we started this, so that families can come in and go to the butcher shop and talk to the their local butcher and uh, not miss any of those experiences. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to master the vegan spam for Aubrey's birthday. Once we get that vegan spam, we're going to call it sham. And we're going to fool the world. Oh, I love it. I love that idea. Um, All right. Well, look, maybe this is a good time for me to turn to this Italian cold cut sandwich. What fake meats are in here and cheeses? It's got a pastrami, capicola, pepperoni. It's got our mozzarella cheese and a house-made garlic mayonnaise. All right. Let me give this a try. Mm. To be honest, I can't even tell the difference between capicola, pepperoni, and salami when I'm eating them as meat. But this really delivers the thing. I, if I wasn't looking at it, because the collar is a little browner, maybe. But I think you could pull the wool over some people's eyes here. Oh, heck yeah. So what's next? What meat are you endangering next? Uh, well, we'd like to meet the parents first. And then uh, after, after that, um, you know, who knows? Who knows? 
Oh my God, Brendan, it's a miracle. Someone with more and worse puns than you. I thought you were going to say a vegan with a sense of humor, but yes, that too. Uh, My new pun heroes, Kale and Aubrey Walsh, owners of the Herbivorous Butcher in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wow. And to check out photos of the shop and their various non-meat meats and non-cheese cheeses, you can head to dinnerpartydownload.org. It's pretty cool. All right, coming up, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt's Titus Burgess helps you mind your manners when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new tune from Shabazz Palaces. And coming up, best-selling author Anne Lamott tells us how to be merciful to ourselves and to Klingons. But first, let's learn some manners. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is singer, songwriter, and actor extraordinaire Titus Burgess. Yeah. Hello. I have to talk you up, though, Titus. So give me a uh, please, second Please, I'm so gonna, sorry to uh, mean to interrupt. No, no. no I'm, I'm so excited to co-host <laughs> this with you. I just couldn't help myself. You're, you're welcome to be here. <laughs> So let's go down memory lane, shall we? Okay, perfect. In the last decade, he's taken Broadway by storm with roles in The Little Mermaid and Guys and Dolls. Mm. Nicely, nicely, right? That is correct. I, no one saw it. Really? What? Yeah, cl- close really fast. My favorite musical. Is it really? Time. Oh, yeah. I've you played, know, I do not like that musical. What? You're just saying I'm that. I'm not just saying that. What else did I do? Then Keep after going. landing a small gig on <clears throat> Tina Fey's beloved sitcom 30 Rock, the same producers created one of the most insane characters on television for him, that would be a repressibly fabulous Titus Andromedon in the Netflix series The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Oh, my. His third season is just out now. And Titus, welcome. Thank, thank you. you. This yeah. is where I'm supposed to start talking. Perfect. <laughs> if only you'd been silent that whole time. I know. You guys should have like one of those signs where it tells audience to applause. <laughs> you just tell me to shut up. Begin. <laughs> shut up. So let's go back to the genesis of this insane character. When they call you up to tell you they created Titus for you, how did they describe him? Well, no one called. I had to audition for this. I got a text from my manager asking when was the last time I spoke to Tina Fey. And I was like, well, that would be the day that I my arc on her TV show ended. (laughs) (laughs) That was like three years ago. So um, she goes, well, either you're about to get a really awesome job or this is a cruel joke. And she sent me the description. It said um, African-American actor, Broadway star wannabe, lives in a basement apartment down on his luck, takes in a roommate. Kimmy lives in Harlem, and I was living in a basement apartment <laughs> in between jobs in Harlem. Really? You're like, no this joke. is creepy. Did Tina know that or no? No, she did not know that. Well, well that's I, what they say. She might have put that, cameras in that room. That's well, a little scary. It was um, hand in glove. I sort of had an insight as to how to um, <laughs> how to approach this person since how it was to you. This guys, <laughs> you're like, I don't even have to go method because no. Tina Fey went method. Open for my me. mouth and talk. So in this new season, you do. A full-on Beyonce impression. It's you not s- an impression. We okay. pay homage to... The, an homage. That's yeah, a better yeah, word. Yeah. That's a better word. And you smash a window with, as Titus calls it, a baseball stick. Yeah. <laughs> Why do I get the feeling that you had input on this episode? Was not, this... No? Nope. You didn't? I, I, I get this question a lot. They all think... People think that I improv and that uh, I, I, ha- I have some sort of control over the storylines. I don't know anything about birth and no babies until they come out. <laughs> so so, so you, they present you with this song, and you've been featured singing many songs on this show. Mm-hmm. You grew up far from Broadway. Mm-hmm. Tell us about how that love began. Um, I grew up in a town just outside of Athens, Georgia. Grew up in the church. My mom sings, and my grandma huh? sang, and I was the minister of music 
at a very young age directing you know a bunch of adults this little kid telling adults what to do you were directing really? the adults yeah man how did that happen i played the, learned to play the piano at a very young age and that sort of was my end into music and then when i got to grade school you know we started doing these silly little kitty plays or whatever but i would always audition for them because i wanted to you know, be an actor. I guess. Yeah, so, yeah um, sure. So that's kind of how this whole thing started. Do you remember your first role in the Kitty Plays? I do. There was a musicalized version of Rumpelstiltskin, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I was Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> uh, do you color, remember colorblind casting back then? <laughs> um, we were very forward, very progressive school. All right. Well, the reason we asked you here is to answer some etiquette questions. And we had a bunch of people excited to get your expertise. Are you ready for these? Yeah, go for it. We need you All right, right away. This first question comes from Spen. In Huntington Beach, California. Hi, Spen. Spen writes, A male friend recently told me about all the primping he gets done on a regular basis. Eyebrow coloring, eyelash curling, etc. He is planning on getting an expensive beauty procedure done I find equally superfluous. Is there a way I can tell him I feel it's unnecessary? Or do I just have to smile and be supportive? Mm-hmm. Well, Spin, you can tell this quote-unquote male friend of yours <laughs> that you love him just the way he is and just profess it and come out already. It's no big deal. <laughs> this is the 90s. <laughs> Let the guy do whatever he wants to no do. No need to hide. Come that's, on. that's like a line in this season where Kimmy Schmidt says something about oh, it is, being it? gay. And you're like, like it's everyone's gay, Kimmy. It's the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's amazing. Well, Sven, maybe we made a love connection. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Titus, for seeing right through that and giving the real advice Sven oh, was asking on, of for. Of course. <laughs> That's why you're here. Here's something from Amy in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I love this question. She says, I teach at a small school where a gaggle of second graders have lovingly decorated their homework folders with a Titus slash Pinot Noir theme. That is a Pinot Noir figures prominently in certain episodes of the show. I appreciate their efforts, says Amy, but I'm unsure if I should condone little kids basically turning their school gear into wine ads. Advice? If you present it, they will have less of an urge and desire to do it before they're supposed to. I see. If you suppress it, kids are more prone to go and try and drink. I see. If you make it a taboo, they're going to drink Exactly. Do it in a supervised environment is what you're saying. Exactly. Do you you find that kids respond to you? I mean, your character is has such great energy and speaks Kids so respond to how colorful it is, yeah. how bright it is, and how fast it is. I don't think they're digesting sure, the exactly. content the, itself. The content but, itself. But when Clearly. you're out in public, do, do you find that oh, young yeah. people are like, oh yeah, my yeah. God. I, I was shocked the first and second season the, at how young the audiences seem to be, but I hear from moms all the time that they it's a family affair to watch this and I don't understand <laughs> yeah, how that a, is unless they're not getting the jokes the way because <laughs> it is very much an adult situation comedy alright here's our last question this comes from Frank in Philadelphia Pennsylvania and Frank writes a guy at my gym routinely takes selfies while flexing in the mirrors he once came into the locker room stood just a few feet from me and hiked up his tank top to get a shot of his six pack abs is there a polite, non-creepy way to ask for his Instagram handle? Ooh, a twist oh. of a question at the end there. <laughs> there you go. 
Well, at least this person's not hiding. <laughs> this isn't. This isn't. Spend. Of course, it's a polite way to do it. You you offer to take his picture next time instead of he doesn't have to do a selfie. <laughs> that's oh. right. And that's how you strike up the conversation. That's right. And I've done that before, and I don't get it twisted. <laughs> and then you say, "Hey, can I? I'm going to have to text this photo to you." And then you get his phone number. Let me tag me and tag me and let people know that I took the picture. Then he has to tag you. Exactly. And so then you know exactly how to find him. And okay. also, Frank, this whole idea you don't need to ask in a non-creepy way. I think you can ask in a creepy way. <laughs> Yeah, I think this. Yeah. I think this person's inviting it. Yeah, that more than yeah. deserves that response. It's in the locker room for crying out loud. All right, well, Titus Burgess, thank you for telling our audience how to behave. This flew by. You're welcome. And uh, a special thanks from Spen in Huntington Beach, California. I think you may have changed his life. The love connection. <laughs> Titus Burgess, he just received his third Emmy nomination for his work on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Check it out, if only for his interpretation of Beyonce's Lemonade. And folks, you don't have to ask for our Instagram handle. We'll tell it to you. It's Dinner Party DNLD. You can always drop us an etiquette question there or catch behind-the-scenes photos of wonderful people like Titus. Anne Lamott's spunky, soul-bearing nonfiction has made her a best-selling author many times over. Her books sometimes investigate spiritual themes, and sometimes they're about very human triumphs and tribulations, like overcoming alcoholism or raising a son as a single mother. Her latest is called Hallelujah Anyway, Rediscovering Mercy. In the book, she defines mercy as, quote, radical kindness. I told her I understood the kindness part, but I wanted her to explain the radical part. Well, probably the most radical part of it all is that it begins with kindness to yourself in the in the same measure with which you would be very, very kind to others, sort of automatically, especially women are outgoingly warm and friendly to other people because we were raised to believe that this was where our value lay. And yet with ourselves, men and women both, we tend to be harsh and we tend to be Mm. easily exasperated with ourselves so the radical part of kindness is about stroking your own shoulder you know and stopping the the bad self-talk and that's where my belief in healing both ourselves and our families in the world begins is that we put our own oxygen masks on first Mm. that's a good way of putting it because i i would think that some folks would think that the radical part would be embracing a foe or someone who's really made you feel bad about yourself and somehow forgiving them. That's so hard. I mean, the hardest work we do is forgiveness. But for me, it's easier to forgive someone I just abhor Hmm. than it is to forgive myself some of the time. I'm so exasperated and kind of stunned by how disappointingly I behave. Eventually, I forgive everyone because... There's that old saying that not forgiving is like drinking poison and waiting for the rat to die. And we're the Mm. one who suffers from holding on to resentments and staying clenched up and, Mm. you know, bitter. Yeah. You know, in this book, as you grapple with what it means to be merciful, you weave in stories from different faith traditions and from your own life. One is the biblical story of Jonah in the Old Testament. Uh And it's the part after he spends some time living inside a whale And so I was wondering, can you fill us in on part two of that story and tell us what captivated you about it and how it applies to today? I and my Sunday school kids all love stories about the biggest brats in the Bible, Um, (laughs) sort of bitter goody two-shoes, you know, and that don't forgive Uh very well. And so what happens for Jonah when he lands in Nineveh, 
is that he's supposed to go tell everybody to stop being such awful people. He hates them. They're the enemies of Israel. They're the Klingons. And his message to them (laughs) is that if they start following God, then they'll be forgiven. But he doesn't really want them to be because they're just such awful people. He thinks they should all die. So, um, and that is so me. That's basically me. And, um, but then um, what happens is they hear the word and they all decide to become people of goodness and mercy. And, they obey him, yeah. Yeah, but for Jonah, he's not having any of it. So he goes and sits by this tree on the outskirts of town, just fuming. And then a, in the tree next to him, a worm comes and starts to eat the tree. And Jonah cries out passionately for, for God to save the tree. And God says, really, Jonah, you want me to save the tree, but not the people? And um, mm. and my kids love it at church because it's them. It's us. It's that we're, we make no sense. We vote against our own instincts. We care about stupidity. And um, and in it all, our, our generosity towards the common good gets lost. But I love all the stories where somebody is acting really, really badly and doesn't end up acting all that much better. Because <laughs> you can identify with that? Yeah. <laughs> You know, reading this book yesterday, I didn't realize how hungry I was for its message to some extent. And and I did find it was a bomb. I mean, you're very candid about your own failings and, and, and the notion of mercy in general. And then I, I read half of it. I was walking to the subway. I peeked at my phone and saw the headlines. And it was, North Korea says nuclear attack imminent. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm telling you, this, this, I was, in my mind, I was carrying this notion of mercy and trying to be more compassionate to myself and to other people in my life. And I was ready to do that for someone cutting me off in the subway. But then when it was yeah. on such a large scale, I was like, oh, my gosh. I was so angry at the leadership of North Korea, at the fumblings of politicians in our country, that I really had a hard time holding on to this idea of mercy in the face of such scary stuff. I know. But that's why it's so needed, and that's why it's so life-changing that if you go from being freaked out and contained in your own little ticker tape, Mm. you know, software of your brain freaking out and thinking who's to blame and, oh, God, what if, if that you stop and and you start flirting with old people in the subway and you give people (laughs) your seats or you start to talk to somebody at the health food store who clearly is not doing very well Mm. just to say, oh, I love those apples. They're incredibly sweet and they are changed and I am changed. So it sounds like even by kind of um, triggering an act of mercy, no matter how small, it acts as a salve for something even that might be beyond your control. I think it is like a little bit of medicine to the common pool. I do want to end with this one question. The title of this book comes from a, a Candy Staten song uh-huh. called Hallelujah Anyway. I just uh-huh. want to know what, how that came about and your relationship to that song. Well, I have a tiny choir at a tiny failing church in Marin City, <laughs> California, and the choir is about eight people and the congregation's about 40. And every so often we, I would hear this song that basically, in a nutshell, says, it's all hopeless. My feet hurt all the time. I'm getting pink eye. My kid is scaring me to death. And I'm very, very sad that um, Justine and Eric are splitting up. But you know what? Hallelujah anyway. We'll be there for them as they need it. We're going to laugh off and on today. We have our music. We have our books. Love and grace and mercy are bigger than any bleak crud that the world has to throw at us if we stick together. So that's what hallelujah anyway means. Yeah.
Mott. Her book and this song is called Hallelujah Anyway. It's out now. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week, everybody. If you want to hear more, click the podcast app on your phone, search for the Dinner Party download, and you will find special podcast-only episodes of our show, including our annual All Icebreaker episode featuring a cavalcade of wonderfully terrible jokes as told mm-hmm. by famous folks from Jordan Peele to Amy Mann. Go get it. Yes. Meanwhile, this episode would not have been possible without senior producer Jackson Musker, associate producers James Kim and Krista Ripple, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, intern Emerald Douglas, and engineer Chris Clark. And now, here's one for the road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Alternative hip-hop duo Shabazz Palaces just released a new album. It's called Quasars, Born on a Gangster Star. Here's a track from it. It's called Shine a Light. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newnham. And remember, radical kindness. All right. Good show, man. You too. Well done. Hey, guys. Here are your coffees. How many times do I have to tell you I drink tea? And I asked for this ice. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Kindness. Kindness.